Good morning. Good morning. Welcome again to Radius Church. Good to see everybody this morning. We're going to continue our series we've been going through on 1 Corinthians. Um, I'll open us up in a word of prayer and then we'll we'll get right into it. Um, Good to have you with us this morning. Father, thank you that we can be here this morning. And Lord, uh, we do just appreciate that we can all be in this same room. And uh, as our brother uh, said, Lord, there's so many uh, that we have to give thanks to and we want to acknowledge and uh, appreciate, uh, Lord God, for this. And we especially thank you, uh, Lord, that you've, you've brought reconciliation between us, God, and yourself. And because of that, we can experience reconciliation with one another. Lord, there's a lot of sin, and there's a lot of sin in this world. There are a lot of relationships. There are a lot of uh, things that we look at and we see, and they're not the way that they're supposed to be. You can make it right here and now, in part, and one day it'll be right all the way in your eternal kingdom. We look forward to that day. Lord, guys, we open your word this morning and pray that you would speak. Your spirit would work in our hearts and our lives to hear what you are saying. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we're at. I'm going to adjust this one second. There we go. Have you ever noticed that we kind of uh, operate, we like society, No, I'm not thinking anyone individually per se here, but we kind of operate in extremes. There's this tendency. We move from one extreme to the other. Um, you know, I grew up in church and we kept seeing us often. It would be like, here's what one church does. And so we're going we're gonna to go to the opposite end and we're going to say those things are bad. Uh, or here's what one church does and uh we're going to go to the opposite end. We're going to say, actually, those things are good, right? There's like this pendulum. We're swinging one side to the other. We kind of react based on the, the things that we see. And so um, there are these kind of, there can be these polar, polarizing viewpoints that people have, these extremes, right? You've been alive, I assume. I mean, I'm looking at everyone except for the youngest, who are, a few of them are here. The last few years, we know there are polarizing viewpoints, Right, we know that there's differences on the end of the spectrum. Um, <clears throat> well, with the Corinthian church, there's there's no difference here. Uh, what's been, we've been reading in First Corinthians six, and then getting into chapter seven, there's these these different viewpoints that they have, and they're kind of at different ends of one another. So we're going to be looking at this. The big ones are uh, in regard to uh, what God has created, sex, something good, and its fulfillment. There's the indulgence. There's the liberal side. You can do whatever you want to do. And then there's the uh, very conservative uh, side, abstinence. Like, that's evil. That's bad. Stay away from that uh, altogether. We'll be talking about uh, one of these, but engaging this concept as we go. Let me read, starting verse 1, I'll read First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, right now. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And I'm reading from the ESV. If you're, you have some different words, that's probably why, just a slight different translation. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and another, and one of another. <clears throat> Amen. Praise God for his word. <clears throat> the, uh, the Corinthians here are advocating for abstinence, essentially. Uh, it's good. Some, some will say, uh, translations will say in verse 1, it's good for man not to touch a woman. Um, it's good, or mine says, it's good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman, and uh, if you, you're reading the ESV, you'll see there's quotes in there. <clears throat> uh, I see this uh, as really a quote from the Corinthians. The Corinthians are saying, Paul's writing about things about which they wrote about, is the first part of verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Some of the other things that they were saying is you go back to what Brother Tavu uh, was preaching on in uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Here's one of the things that they were saying. All things are lawful for me is one of the concepts. Paul counters, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And in, this, in that passage, he pretty clearly says, flee sexual immorality. So now here's the other side that he's addressing. Here's, okay, I have freedom in Christ. I can, I can do whatever I want with my body. That's fine. No, we've established, as we are looking last week, if you are in Christ, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, and we're called to glorify God with our bodies, right? And things that we don't indulge in and things that we enjoy as well here. So it's not good for a man to to have sexual relations with a woman, but continue on in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. There's a a reality. We'll talk about this temptation in just a minute. But uh, note here, each, verse 2, each, because because of temptation, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Uh, This phrase right here makes no room for anything other than a one-man, one-woman marriage union. All else is simply not marriage. Brother Tavy talked about our culture and where we've gone and our redefinition of marriage. Um, It's not marriage. God created marriage. He created man and he created woman in his own image. He created them and they come together. The first, the first thing that we see after man and woman is they're coming together. They become one flesh. Marriage is an institution put together by God, the creator, before things 
were fallen and broken in this world. You read about that before you get to Genesis chapter 3. There is a, there's a scheme out to destroy all the good works of God, and this is one of those. One man, one woman, that's it. You think of boundaries in our lives. We think um, boundaries are bad. Let me do whatever I want to do without any parameters, and let me just go after that. How does that work out for the drug addict? Not well, Right? Go and do whatever you want to do. I, uh, no, I've not been addicted to drugs myself ever, so I can't speak to that end. I've spoken with uh, person after person after person who has. I had a brother who was in that scene. Damage to the family. Damage to my relationship with him. Damage uh, to, to all of us. He's stealing. He's lying. Uh, he's in and out of jail. It's like, you know, uh, first phone call with him when he's in jail is my son was born. He's right here. And he says, I'm a changed man. Well, I, I thought that that was just a jailhouse confession. I'm changed. I'm in. I understand. I'm changed, right? Uh, he gets out. He goes back to that life cycle. And we prayed and we prayed. And many were praying by God's grace. Uh, freed him out of that, right? No, you need boundaries. There's things you can and can't do. There's substances that you can have. I can have a cup of coffee. It's okay. If I drink lots of coffee, that's a bad excess. And the doctor is going to tell me, cut back, right? Or you're getting the jitters too much. Um, I have a friend who goes bonkers when she drinks a cup of coffee. Um, okay, but for me, I don't have that same problem. You know, so there's some, uh, s- some wisdom that we got to use, but there's some things we say, this is okay, this is safe. Other things are clearly not permissible. And we need, we need to be told, no, that's not okay. And it's going to be the same with marriage, right? We operate all of our lives with boundaries, And God has boundaries that he established that we shouldn't break. If we break them, it's called sin. We're transgressing. And we think God is evil and wicked to say, you can't pass this line. You can't break this boundary. You can't do this or can't do that. It's actually good. It's actually good. When we break the boundaries of what God intended marriage to be, we don't just destroy the home. We destroy society. And there's a plan to do that, right? There's a plan to do that from our enemy, not from God. God wants to redeem. God wants to restore. So boundaries are good. I could talk more about that. I think I just wanted to draw your attention to that. Verse 2 reiterates what we saw all throughout the Bible. Marriage is this, between a man and a woman. One man, one woman, no exceptions. It's not marriage outside of that. Verse 3 the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, or I don't use this word, so of course I need to look it up. Um, it's pertaining to uh, the sacred rights of marriage. You know, you're, 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 it's like your vows, right? Uh, we vow to give ourselves to one another uh, is kind of the concept. So give the man should get to his wife her marriage rights, and likewise the wife also to her husband. We're going to give ourselves to each other. Um, there's a, there's a broad concept in this passage that I want to address because I was thinking about this, this passage this morning. I'm thinking, oh, uh, is this only applied to married folks and everyone else needs to check out? Um, no. Here's the broad, broad theme that I see here that we can apply over is this concept of selfishness. We think that it's all about us, right? Look at that again. The husband should give... His wife, her rights, and likewise, the wife should give her husband. We'll get into verse 4. When we don't, we think it's all about us. We think that 
in marriage, we think about even romantic relationships, and broader than this, all of life, it's about what we can get from other people, how they can be used to satisfy us. This passage says, no, that's wrong, and in the form of what it's talking about, marriage. It teaches that marriage, in marriage, a man's body's for his wife, for her pleasure. And a woman's body in marriage is for her husband and his pleasure. Doesn't say my body for my pleasure, my desires. No. Says it's for the good of my me, for the good of my wife. My wife for the good of me, right? And the broader concept I'm saying is this concept of selfishness. <clears throat> we look around the world and it's prevalent. It's all about me. It's all self-focused. Think about a society. Think about our society and where we're going if that continues to be the focus of our lives. Selfish. People are going to get in your way. People are going to view you as the object of getting what they want and what they desire. Do you want to be treated like that? No, you want to, you want to treat other people like that. You don't want them to treat you like that. But we're all vouching for selfish desires. What will stop us? What will stop us? There's only one. God. God will stop us in our selfishness. Look with me at Philippians 2. If we can get that on the screen, please. <clears throat> it's, it's crazy. The Bible says God has all power. He created everything. We rebelled against him, and he offers us forgiveness. And where we see the, the, uh, the pinnacle of this, or the peak of this, is in Jesus when he came to earth. God, when he said, I'm going to become man, to redeem man, to free man. And how does he behave? He gives himself for us. He doesn't use us. He doesn't abuse us for his own little selfish desires. He comes down. He gets rejected. He gets abused. He gets persecuted. He's, he's not understood. He gets condemned. He gets mocked. He gets beaten. He, need, he takes all of that for us. And so we ought to imitate that. Verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ. Any comfort of love, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." There's a command. What? Don't be selfish. Don't be conceited. Count others more significant than yourselves. There's humility that has to be there. Look out not for your own interests. we got to look out for our interests, right? Um, but there's a selfish way that we go when we do that. So don't just look out for yourself. Look out for the interest of others. How do we do that? Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you know Jesus... This is your mind. You, Jesus is in, in you. You have the spirit of God in us. We are changed. We are his. We are now in Christ so we can have his mind. Who though, Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I'll pause there. We'll keep reading, but I'll pause there. Christ, who is God, came down to earth, and he, did he do what uh, he did with three disciples? He went with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, 
up on a mountain and was transfigured or transformed before them and bright and radiant, his, his glory as he actually is, glorious. And they saw that. He didn't walk around earth like that. People didn't even recognize him. They didn't know him, right? The Jews who were looking for Messiah didn't recognize the Messiah. And still to this day, many don't. Why would God come uh, in ambiguity like that, in an obscure way, hidden from our eyes? He He didn't come taking on what was rightfully his. He could have come and blown us away with all of his glory. He didn't do that, though. He took on the form of a servant. And being born, he was born in the likeness of men. Humble. Christ was humble. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus and the Father agreed that he would come. The Father, you read, the, you read New Testament again and again, it talks about the Father sending the Son, John 3, 16. Um, it's pretty clear on that. But there's also language talking about the Son coming. The Son also comes for us. Um, as just an extra, we could say, people who say the Father is abusing, uh, is being abusive by sending his Son to the cross are wrong because the Son willingly went to the cross. They both agreed. The Father sent and the Son said, I will go. He was submissive. He was obedient. Willingly went for you and for me. Verse 9. Because he did this, he became a man, he humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Notice, this is talking about glory, this is talking about honor, this is talking about praise. It comes after his suffering. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who God is. The God who made us, the God that we rebelled against, is the God that says, you won't recognize me, but I'll come down for you in your state when you don't recognize your state. I will pay for your sin on a cross. I'll be charged as a criminal. I'll be mocked. I'll be spit at. I'll be uh, persecuted. I'll die for you. And I'll rise again. And then I will offer you free, I'll freely offer you forgiveness for your sin, for your deeds. He's selfless. He's not selfish. Did he have to do that for us? No. Do, do we have to go and, and help and serve rebels when, or when people, when they, when they rebel against us, when they say something against us? My knee-jerk reaction is to fight against them, right? Uh, I'm from the Dallas area. Road rage is prominent there. I was trained to drive with road rage, let's be honest, right? Uh, you pull out in front of me, how dare you pull out in front of me, right? I'm nothing, I'm insignificant, but I act like I'm so important, and so I, I have bad tendencies on the road. Uh, the Midwest is helping me. God is using the Midwest to train me to not be, not drive like that. <clears throat> we, need to be, we need to be selfless, selfless, not selfish. How do we get there? Through Christ. Look at him. Look at what he did. You can't be selfless according to God's standard apart from Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, you need to come to Christ. He'll forgive you. He'll change you, right? He'll change the way that you live. If you know Jesus, you know that you're not there yet, right? 
We know we still have issues. We know that Jesus is still the same great Savior. Like we got to go back to him. we got to ask for forgiveness. And you know what he says? My child, yes, I forgive you. I forgive you. Right? God is good. God is selfless, not selfish. And he calls us to himself. That kind of example draws me in. Right? And it draws you in, although I know people still reject him. Let's keep reading. So verse 3 kind of talking about this broad concept. The focus is in marriage uh, primarily, right? The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband also. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over over his own body, but the wife does. Uh, This is in the context of the covenant of marriage, Man and wife come together, and before God, they agree to give themselves to one another. That's the way marriage should be. That's the way marriage should be. I know it's not always like this, right? Um, I'm going to talk primarily about Christian marriage. There are some questions that you might have. Uh, what if I'm not a Christian, or what if I got married and then I became a Christian? I'm not necessarily going to address uh, those here, but I want to talk the, to the brothers or sisters that are married. Many problems arise when husband or wife withhold themselves from their spouse for one reason or another reason. There are many ways that we can look at these verses and misuse them for selfish reasons, right? Are you saying we shouldn't be selfish, we should be selfless, not selfish. Abstaining from intimacy or um, being intimate, there can be problems as we look at this passage and we try to apply them. Husband and wife, you don't have... Uh, the right to withhold from your spouse. But here are some issues. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're bitter. Maybe you're resentful. And so you say, I don't, don't want to give you what's yours. I want to give myself to you. I want to I get away from you. You need to talk to your spouse. You need to talk. Maybe before, you need to talk to God, right, and work that through. But husband and wife ought to communicate and work out the, the problems in their relationship, If you're ill or not feeling well for one reason or another, you should be able to communicate that, right? There are reasons why we might withhold that are okay, that are biblical, that are reasonable. uh, But to withhold in a selfish way is never good, right? Let's say you can't communicate. You're at that point in your marriage that you can't communicate these things, right? You can't talk because you don't don't want to take that step. You don't want to get to that place with that person, You're in a a dangerous path that can lead to destruction for your marriage. Get help. Get help. Maybe this is a Christian counselor you talk to, someone some wisdom within the body of Christ that you can uh, talk to. Um, We could talk more and more about that. Hopefully, Lord willing, together you would both agree to go and pursue that, right? Pursue that together. Get help. We all need it. We're all messed up. We're all sinners. Uh, we think about counseling. We all need counseling, right? Um, so let's get the help that we need, that your marriage would be healthy. Verse 5. Verse 5 says this. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When you deprive one another, there's gonna probably is gonna be a problem, 
right? Your spouse may fall into sexual temptation. And if you're the one withholding yourself and you're not your own, right? You've agreed in marriage that you'd give yourself, that your body, the authority over your body is, for me, is my wife. My wife, uh, and I for my wife, did I mix those up? You get what I'm saying, right? Uh, the husband has authority over his wife. The wife has authority over her husband's body. And I say, I'm going to withhold that. No, I'm not going to give it. And my wife falls into te- sexual temptation. She gives into that sin. It's not just her fault. Let's be honest. It's my fault. I'm not doing my part, right? I'm not doing my part. That's an issue. We've got to do our part. Why? Satan's there to tempt us. We've already seen in verse 2, because of temptation. Temptation pops up again here. But it says, what? So that Satan may not tempt you. Satan's thrown into the picture. Why is he mentioned? Well, the Bible has this viewpoint that there are things that happen in this world. There are beings in this world that we don't see. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just a biblical fact, right? There are heavenly beings, and there is this primary enemy, Satan, the devil, who is against God and against everything that he is about. He's against Israel. He's against the church. He wants to destroy them. And so you look at marriage, he wants to destroy marriage. He hates man because, and I say man, humankind, that's what I'm thinking of. He hates humankind because we are made in God's image, male and female. He wants to destroy and distort that any way he can. And so he wants to do this in marriage very clearly. In Genesis chapter 3, he tempts Eve. He tempts her, and there's lots going on there. One thing he's wanting to do is to destroy Eve's relationship with God and then Adam's relationship with God and their relationship with one another by introducing sin. And they were tempted, and they gave in. The family is foundational for society, and the foundation for the family is the husband and the wife. Satan doesn't love society. He hates society. He wants to destroy you. He doesn't want you to follow God's design for your life, to obey God. He doesn't want the people who don't know Jesus, who don't know that that they're sinful and that they need Christ to forgive them for their sins and that he went to the cross for them, that he already paid for that and all they got to do is receive it and accept it freely. You don't have to do anything. You just have to believe Acknowledge your state and trust what's already been done for you. Satan doesn't want people to see that. He doesn't want people to see that. I heard of a, a fr- one of my friends, uh, he's a missionary in Japan. He said, um, he was talking, about sharing the gospel. He a group of believers sharing the gospel. And this one lady was hearing it and she was right there. She was right there. But all her life she'd been trained to never, ever, ever receive a free gift. Never. And I was like, oh, that's a tactic from the enemy. It's like, if you receive a free gift, why was she trained that way? I have no doubt that Satan, or maybe not particularly Satan, but the enemy and his workers were training her to not be saved, right? She grabbed a hold of of Christ's hand. She came to salvation. Praise God for that, right? She took that step. Like, this is going against everything I've ever been taught. Don't ever accept a free gift. But she saw the free gift of Christ, and it was so good. She took that step, right? Satan doesn't want you taking that step. He doesn't want you turning to Christ, he wants to destroy, and so this is, this is in line with what he does. He says, I will tempt. I'm going to destroy the family. I'm going to destroy husband and wife by tempting them. And so when we deprive one another, when we withhold what is we should rightfully give to our spouse, 
we open that door, right, of temptation. And that's not good. God doesn't want that. Here's a few questions. Kind of like a pause on where we're at. It's clear that we can be tempted to sin and that we are not supposed to sin. So let me just make clear. I'm kind of saying this, but let me just be clear. What do we do with our sin? We all know we've sinned. And I'm going to say we all know we've sinned in this area, right? They're like, I don't know. We can deceive ourselves and say, I don't sin. But then if we start talking to people who know us, they know we sin. We mess up. We act selfishly, not selflessly, right? We do things we ought not to do. The Bible says this, there is no one who does not sin. It also says all have sinned. The Bible also says this, it says this about Jesus, that in every respect he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. We need Jesus. He came down and he lived a perfect life. He was not sinful. If you go back, if your Bibles are open, just look back a few verses. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Brother Ubini brought this out really clearly a few weeks ago. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And chapter 1, verse 18, just this one verse says this, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We're we're all in this boat. We're all born sinful, right? But Jesus can cleanse us of our sin. He can wash us. He can make us pure, right? This same, this same girl who um, trusted in Christ, as my friend and his, his group of uh, Christians were talking with her, she said that she had this feeling. This was kind of cool to hear. She had this, this feeling like white garments were being put on her when she came to know Jesus. In that moment, she's like, there's this garment that was put on her, and she felt pure and clean. That's true. The basis of your Purity is not what you've done, but the pure one who did something for you. Jesus' blood does not stain you. It washes the stains from you, right? We're all stained. We're all guilty. Jesus wants to cleanse us by what he's done on the cross. So what do we do? We turn to him. Are you, uh, are you still thinking about Christ? Are you still trying to think, should I come to him? He offers freely to you salvation, forgiveness, love, help, his presence every day, everywhere you go. There's no better place to be than to be with Jesus. That's what you were meant for, all of us. The world tells a different story because it's not ruled by God. It's ruled by Satan. He wants you to stay away from that, right? There's a fight. There's a fight. We're asking, come to Christ. There is no one like him. Life won't be easy. You'll be forgiven, and you do have the promise of eternal life. If you're a brother or sister in Christ, and you're like, I'm in sin. What's the remedy? How do I change? There's nothing other than Jesus. You go to him. He forgives you. He cleanses you. 
Can you be a Christian and, and follow Christ and still be sinning and him still be okay with that? No, he's not okay with sin. But will he forgive you? Yes, he will. He'll wash the dirt off your feet, right? To kind of pull the image from Peter when he's, when he's uh, washing the disciples' feet. He says that they're bathed, right? And Peter's like, Lord, don't wash my feet. And then Jesus is like, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Peter's like, oh, well, wash, wash my whole body, uh, he goes from one to the other extreme. And then Jesus is like, for those who are, who are bathed or washed, you, you, don't, you don't need to be washed again, right? You just, I'm very loosely paraphrasing. I don't have it memorized. Uh, but the concept, you just need to have your feet washed, right? We walk in this world and we get sin on us. We, we sin, right? And our feet need to be washed and Christ does that for us. He's always the solution to our problem for the sinner, for the saint. We know we all sin, but in God, in Christ, we can all be saints. Praise him for that. Go to verse, verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Uh, what is he conceding here? What is he saying? Okay, 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 it's fine. Like, I'll allow you to do this. Uh, there's, there's two different, there's different viewpoints on this. Some are saying, oh, um, intimacy within marriage. Okay, you, you can be intimate. That's okay. I don't see that, right? From the beginning, God created this union, man and woman, uh, and at the end of Genesis 2, they're naked and they're not ashamed, right? And although as before, when we see the story continue to develop, we see sin enter in, the original intent is good. And if you go read Song of Solomon, you see what it should look like. I think Paul's conceding this concept in verse 5. And that's really where the word this is pointing to. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that you may not be, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What's the concession? Okay. If you want to abstain for a season to pray to seek God, that's fine. But here's the issue, our lack of self-control. How long do you do that? How long is wise? Pretty much Paul's saying, like, this is unwise. This isn't necessary. But you could do this. You could abstain for for a, a period, and I'd say a short period, to pray, to seek the Lord. This is what he, he is conceding. <clears throat> uh, let's lastly look at verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. At this state and what we see in the New Testament, all we can tell is Paul was single. So Paul being single, and he's going to continue on, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, next Sunday, looks at and says, oh, you know, um, I wish that everybody was like me. Everyone could have this gift that I have. But there's gifts for both kinds. There's a gift of marriage and there's the gift of singleness, right? Some think about, oh, gifting of singleness, and they're like, ah, Lord, that's, that's like the curse of singleness. Um, some married folks are like, marriage, that's the curse of marriage. Uh, we're discontent wherever we are, right? Wherever we are. But in Christ, we can, be to, we can learn to be content wherever he's placed us. There's a gift if you're single. Maybe it's for a season. Maybe it's for the rest of your life. The Lord will help you and he'll, he'll make that clear, right? If you can't tame your passions again and again and again, maybe that's not for you. If God helps you to tame your passions again and again and again while you're single, and he kind of is pointing, directing, making that clear, maybe you should be single, 
Maybe that's for you, right? But all of us, we kind of, we're, we're single for a season and then we get married, right? And the marriage doesn't last forever. Let's, let's be real. We die, right? That's not the only issue in our broken world. Divorce happens. It shouldn't happen, but it happens. There's other th- things that we need to talk about when we come across uh, that road, right? But we're not talking about that this morning. What do you do when you find yourself married? Enjoy that gift. What do you do when you find yourself single? Enjoy that gift. And enjoy it for whatever season, for however long that season lasts. For Paul, he was able to go and follow after Christ in hardship, lots of hardship, lots of suffering. And you see him, he's moving all over the place. He's got what we call these missionary journeys that he goes on. That's really hard for a family. That's really hard for a family to do. Doesn't mean families don't do it. That's not a normal family life though, right? That's a difficult life for a family. Paul didn't have a family though, right, that we read about. He didn't have the gift of a spouse, a companion there with him or children being there. That's a different gift that God gives us, right? I look at my kids and how they're growing up and they're getting older and my wife and it's like there's a gift from God, right? I'm limited. I can't go do what Paul did to the nth degree that he did it. But I can do what I can that Paul couldn't do with my family, In my family, I get to show people what a godly marriage should look like. And when I fail, I can show people and say, hey, I fail. And you know who's the remedy? It's Jesus. I go back to him each and every day because I need him. And you can do the same thing too, right? You can do the same thing too. So wherever you find yourself, you might say, I'm limited. But don't forget, don't uh, miss that God has a gift for you there. Embrace that gift and enjoy it while it lasts, knowing that it's from God. So as we look at just kind of an overview, and then let me close in prayer, uh, we've got like these different statements. There's one side, indulgence, 612, 1 Corinthians 6, indulge, indulge, 1 Corinthians 7, abstain, abstain. For the married couples here, I'd say the answer is selflessness, not abstinence, right? Embrace the God-given right, uh, a gift that you have, but uh, also your, your vows to give yourself to another, to your spouse. For everyone, for all of us, enjoy the gift God has for you. The ultimate gift is Christ. And in Christ, we have gifts untold that we can't talk about. Where Ephesians says, uh, we have every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every, every blessing. Because of him, we're in him, we have the blessings. We share those with him. Those are untold. Let's enjoy them. Okay? Let's, let me pray. Lord God, thank you. Uh, for your good design, uh, Lord God, in marriage, for the gift of that. Thank you also for the gift of singleness, uh, Lord God. No doubt as we think about people in our lives and as we think about especially the people in your word, uh, Lord, there are those who are married and that there are those who are single. And uh, Lord, we are blessed by them. We're blessed to see uh, their lives and to, to follow uh, when they were living godly, to follow those examples. And it's helpful to see when they weren't, Lord God, that we might not follow that. And in all things, we want to follow Jesus as we see him selflessly coming to the cross for all of us. Lord, there's, there's no place for self, selfishness in your kingdom, but humility, seeking the better of others and serving them. And we recognize that that is not just a command of yours. That's actually what you did for us. How good you are, God that you don't just stay on high and command us to live a certain way, but you come down 
to us. You walked this earth perfectly. You, you died to pay our penalty. And from there, you empower a new life. We can be born again. We can be transformed by the work of your cross. We thank you for that, Lord God. May we enjoy living for you in this life according to your plan. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.